You're listening to The Recovered Life Show, the show that helps people in recovery live their best recovered lives. And here is your host, Damon Frank. And welcome back to The Recovered Life Show, episode 88, Monday, March 21st, 2022. How you doing, Christina Dennis? I'm doing well, Damon Frank. How are you? Happy Monday. Uh, Happy Monday to you, episode 88. We've got an amazing program outlined for you guys today. Two really great segments. Uh, Good day in Southern California. Have not been outside yet, but I know you've already done your three miles on the treadmill. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yes. I have to. Otherwise, my nervous system will be off the charts all day. So absolutely. Taking care of me. Christina, you are more dedicated than I am today. Uh, guys, we're coming to you. We're coming to you uh, on Monday. It's episode 88, uh, March 21st, 2022. Um, you know, it, it's uh, it's going to be a great life and recovered, recovered life. We've got a lot of stuff planned, and I can't wait to kind of dive into the subjects that we've got here. So, guys, if you're listening to us live on YouTube, Facebook Live, IGTV, or you're just looking to this, uh, you're, you're listening to this on the replay uh, on the podcast. We thank you for listening. Great show ahead. Sure do. And this show has been brought to you by Recovered Life contributors and people like you. So like, share, follow, leave a comment so that we know what kind of content to keep bringing. And also visit info.recoveredlife.us. That is info.recoveredlife.us. You can leave a donation. If you like what we're doing, help us to continue to help others, as well as join the network. It's info.recoveredlife.us. Thanks so much for mentioning that, Christina. You know, the help is always needed. Uh, We love to help other people and we love to kind of put this whole recovery message out there. We'd also like to thank everybody who's listening on the podcast. Uh, Guys, it's been great. We're, We're at episode 88. We never thought in our wildest dreams that we would do so many of these. And now we're live, you know, it is, it's great. Three times a week, it's become a regular thing and it's been a lot of fun. And I've met so many really, really cool people. Uh, Look, so enough of, uh, enough of the small talk, Christina, let's dive in to the media alcoholic topics here. Uh, (laughs) So we had something that was kind of interesting that I found and I, I I wanted to bring it up because I think it's a it's a it's a it's a topic that people don't talk about a lot, but it's why sure. alcoholics choose self-sabotage. And I know there's a lot of people that are listening to this uh, that are, you know, that say, yep, that's me. That's me. I still right. myself. I get into a situation where I'm recovered. I'm doing the deal. Everything is working great. And then all of a sudden I start to do things that will self-sabotage my success. Absolutely. And I think a lot of our loved ones and people around us don't understand that. Perhaps they don't see that part of a person who has an addiction problem. They don't see that part or they do see it, but they don't understand why. So I love the way that it's written out in this article that you found, Damon, because I think that it will help a lot of people, either if you're in addiction, if you're in early recovery, if you've been for a little while to watch out for these things, but also the people and loved ones around us. Yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting about it is I think that people understand that they've self-sabotaged themselves, people Mm -hmm. in recovery, but oftentimes they don't know what actually triggered that, right? And I know that's in my case, I've self-sabotaged myself, you know, unknowingly. Right. And then later realized it was like, you know what? 
one of the benefits of being in recovery is sometimes you you look back on the replay and you sure. say, what could I have done differently? What was, you know, what was the catalyst to make that happen? Um, could I have done anything differently? Was I just, was it just wrong place and wrong time? And you know, and sometimes that's the case, Christina, sometimes it's just the wrong place, the wrong time. We view it as self-sabotage, but it's not really self-sabotage. It's right. just bad luck. Right. And right. that happens. But oftentimes though, oftentimes it is self-sabotage. And I, and I found this article and I'm going to bring it up on the screen here uh, for everybody who's watching on the live stream. Um, and we put a link in it, guys, uh, in the podcast so everybody could do it. It's from a recovery house called New Start Recovery. And uh, it's really great. It says five reasons alcoholics choose self-sabotage. The number one reason was poor self-worth. Right. What do you think of that one, Christina? I think this is absolutely the number one reason. And I think that might surprise some people because sometimes we have these boisterous, big, huge personalities, you know, infomaniac kind of looking things or narcissistic. And people think, no, it isn't that. They just don't care. They don't care that they're hurting us or they don't care what they're doing. Or it may be some kind of front that you're putting on that is not at all true. I have not yet met somebody who's new to recovery or even in recovery for a, a certain length of time that doesn't have to grapple with self-worth. I mean, it is it is absolutely confusing to people from the outside, but inside it's, it's how we feel. When I first got sober, I had no self-worth. And when I really looked at it um, after, you know, taking away the alcohol, I realized what I really had to work on, which was self-worth. Well, let me tell you one of the things about the self-worth that kind of rang true with this is that especially when you get into recovery, <clears throat> what happens is you want to make up for lost time, right? But true. sometimes your perception of yourself, what you can do, what you can't do, a lot of the times you'll swim, the water will go way over your head, you're in way too deep, and you really can't come out and say, you don't feel that you can come out and say, it's like, wow, I'm a little over my head here. True. Right? And so this inner dialogue of a perception of who you are will get you into trouble. So you'll say things, you'll do things, you'll take on commitments that maybe aren't totally appropriate for where you're at in your recovery. So true, Damon. I love that you you said that part and you brought that out because I think that that the regret that some of us have from our past actions make it seem like, ah, uh, I can't really complain. I can't really, you know, I can't really say that I'm good at something because I've ruined this part of my life. Or I can't really say that I know, you know, what my mind is saying because I've not shown that to people when I've been under the influence. And there's just so much shame attached to it. And I hope that Recovered Life puts a dent in that because that is one of the things that people need to understand. Yeah. And, you know, I love that you talked about shame there because, you know, we found through doing these shows and talking with experts, and we're going to be talking to more experts about this because, yes. you know, this whole idea of shame, you know, 12 step, 12 step uh, programs, when they first started, they only talked about fear. Um, mm -hmm. And primarily because, you know, it was primarily written by men uh, post-war, World War II, mm -hmm. you know, during World War II through that, they're, they're not going to talk about shame. They talked about fear. They talked right. about what happens when fear comes up. But if you look at it, really what they're talking about in some of these instances is shame. It's not Absolutely. fear, it's shame. Sure. And shame we know is the lowest vibration. It is. And, you know, if if you go into deeper 12-step programs like ACOA, they do 
actually talk about it. But the original text from 80 plus years ago doesn't use that word as much as I've seen it since then. And I don't think our society used that word. You know, I really don't. Yeah. And so, we talk about, you know, the whole thing about, and this goes into number two, I think the shame element of it, right, goes into number two, which is reason number two, which the New Start Recovery article points out is a need is, is imposter syndrome, which we talked about last week, actually. We had a guest on last week talking about imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, the statistics for imposter syndrome are 70%. And I honestly believe that that's low. Um, and that's for everyone, whether you're in recovery or not in recovery. Um, I believe that the other 30% are, are just, you know, maybe not willing to share that they have these thoughts or at least the next 20%. Because I believe that everybody gets an attack of imposter syndrome. It's a word that came out um, about 30 years ago, but it has certainly entered the zeitgeist since then and people are talking about it and they're letting go of a little bit of the shame because they're realizing many of us have imposter syndrome. I've never met a group of people more gripped by imposter syndrome than addicts though. Addicts definitely have it, you know, in spades. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because the imposter syndrome, which we dug into last week, it really, uh, it's interesting. I, I think that so there's so many people that are capable in recovery. Matter of mm -hmm. fact, I, you know, my, my, my feeling is, and when I'm coaching people or talking with people or working with people that are recovered alcoholics, especially new in recovery, I'm like going, you know, you have a huge edge in the business world. You have a huge, you know, you, you yes. hear me say that a lot because we're able to handle pain. We're also able to process complex emotional feelings. A lot Absolutely. of times we have this capacity and tool to be able to do it, but it's so many people will get themselves in great situations. And I see this in relationships and work and they will really do well, but their inner dialogue is like, it's not doing well, but yet they're the favorite employee. They're the right. person that's always getting stuff done. Right. But then they'll blow it up. They'll blow it up and right in the middle of it. Well, and what does imposter syndrome mean to you, Damon? Just curious, because I'm well, not sure that we always talk about the definition. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think imposter syndrome is feeling that you're a fake or you're not, uh, you know, who am I to really be able to do this? Right. Right. I know it means different things to different people and it's applied differently. But I think in this article, it's more of like not feeling that you really belong there. Yeah. The general sense that you're a fraud is, I think, the term that I hear most. And that does that that explains so much when you think about an alcoholic. So Think about somebody who's done really, really well and they have, you know, entered in and started using alcoholically maladaptively. You know, they're using alcohol in a way or addiction or drugs in a way because they feel like they are a fraud. A lot of us might not see that from the outside. You know, we always talk about in the program, don't compare your insides to somebody's outsides, but the whole world is comparing their insides to somebody's outsides. And I right. think just sensitive people that are really talented, truly suffer from imposter syndrome at a deeper level. Well, I, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that because when it, the comparing, I think social media has killed us with this too, Christina. A little bit. Because, you know, I even find myself, uh, I even found myself uh, this weekend saying, looking at somebody's social media and saying, my get like, they must be way more successful than me. They must, they must like, what, what don't I know 
about the life that they're living right now. Right. They're probably posting pictures that were from five years ago, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, I don't know what's going on with them. And I start to laugh because I laugh at myself because I have enough mm -hmm. recovery that I know it's like, oh, my God, that is the stupidest. Like, why am I saying that to myself? That is so ridiculous. But it's kind of like it's it's we compare and contrast so much. And I think also this feeds into this need for alcoholics to have outside things fix us. And yes. anytime we say that, like, if only I had that, it'd fix me. If only I had the job, but then you get in there and then you feel that you have imposter syndrome. That's not going to work out well for you. No, it isn't. It isn't. And what I've learned about comparison is that it's automatic. And, but the information that comes from that comparison, you can make a decision to either a say, wow, somebody's already done it. So that's great because now I have you know, a schema, I have an example of somebody's already done it, or you can choose to make it a negative thing. But, you know, this whole idea of don't compare yourself, that's kind of impossible um, as they peel back feelings and they peel back layers of our emotions. Comparison is usually something that happens to us, not is us. And so we are going to compare. However, what we do with that information after is the most important part of it. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I, I think it is the, the, what we do after is the most important part of all of this, right? Like, right, so it's like right. the actions we take once we realize that we're having these feelings or realizing that we're taking these actions. Um, number three, I love this because I Huge. see this a ton is need for control, alcoholic self-sabotage because they have a need for control. They don't feel that they're in control and things start to spin out of control. And Damon, I think this could almost seem like a paradox. Again, I've said this a few times in the point that people think, well, then if you need control, why do you ingest something that makes you out of control? Have you heard that question before? Oh, absolutely. And you know what? That is a very, very, very good question. Um, there's a lot of things in recovery that I think of somebody who does not, uh, does not suffer mm -hmm. uh, from uh, addiction does not understand. Like, right. look, let, let's be honest. If, if I was, if I had a broken down car, I always give this analogy all the time. Okay. Christina, if my car broke down and I didn't know how to fix it, I wouldn't go to somebody else who has a track record of not knowing how to fix it. Right. To help <laughs> me with my car. And, and look, that is, isn't, isn't that, isn't that most alcohol recovery is that yes. we go to people who are, uh, who are, had a worse time than we did for, for the most part for, for help. It, there's a <laughs> lot of these paradoxes in there, but it works for some it reason. Works. It works. We know that it, that pure base thing works well. We do. And, and I actually have heard people ask me that question. You know, I've actually been asked that question. Well, don't you guys just talk, sit around and talk about how you used to drink? Isn't that dangerous for you to hang around alcoholics? But it so isn't because being around people and being in a peer support to peer group allows me to see that I'm not alone and that other people did these kinds of behaviors. Other people, you know, like my need for control was so big that I had to check out every single time because it would hurt. And we did a show on this last week about trauma being the base of a need for control. Well, alcoholics have this in spades. I mean, they have it all the way 
we have it all the way through us, right? That we want to control people, places, and things and outside stuff. And we can't. And, you know, we're not in a place of acceptance. So that builds and builds and builds. I can still remember feeling that tension inside and then feeling like the only thing that was going to allow me to check out was to physically check out with alcohol. But the problems that come after are, you know, really, really the troublesome part of alcohol. And I never could exactly focus on that. It was always, let me just get to that point where I can take a deep breath. Yeah, I, you know, none of this makes sense to people who, <laughs> I, I get that. And I'm very honest about it because like I, I would, you know, I've told people, uh, especially family members of people that we work with, they're like, I don't understand that. I'm like, you know, it, because it's really, it, it's really not logical, but right. is it logical to really drink yourself to death when there's no really need to do that? No, uh, no it's not logical, right? Like that logic plays no role in this. Um, it, it's, it's, it's warped. And I, and I totally understand that. Um, reason, reason number four, I like this seeking comfort and familiar familiarity. Um, right. and this was kind of interesting. What was your thoughts on this one? I totally saw my drinking habits as my life. So I can really agree with this point and, you know, thinking that there was no option except to have to get blotted every night, that this is what I did. This was a part of me. And without it, I would have nothing. And, you know, that familiarity of, you know, being at a bar or having people come over really, really seemed to comfort my nervous system. Even if things are really, really tough, you know, um, one of the biggest fears we have, and it's confusing, is the fear of being happy because we're not sure what that other shoe, when that other shoe is going to drop. And so my fear was that if I let go of this, the only thing that's giving me any kind of peace, there won't be anything else behind it. And it's just comfortable. A lot of drinking is habitual. It's ritualistic. And I know I bring drinking up a lot, but the same applies to drug use, to codependency, to eating, to spending money, all of the things that we do outside of ourselves to seek validation and comfort and peace. And, you know, I really, really didn't see and didn't know, which we've talked about before, that there was this life. That's why the peer-to-peer -peer support thing really stepped up my game because I realized, oh my gosh, there are people out there that do not have to drink seven cocktails to go to sleep. They can do yeah, it. Well, there, you know, I think there's no, there's no uh, coincidence that control and this whole thing of, uh, of, of really being the familiar or mm -hmm. are, toge are together because the thing is, is that there's an energy level to active addiction. And, you know, I hear people say, it's like, you know, it was, it was horrible, but it was my horrible. Like right. at least it was safe. I knew like it was bad, but I knew that bad, right. I right. could operate within that bad. And this is the thing that is what, what, what is also baffling about people who don't suffer from addiction. Cause I know that we have a lot of people who, are ACOA that are coming into ACOA and they're coming into ACOA or they're coming into codependency. The, this idea that there's some sort of dysfunction, right. Mm -hmm. in, in their relationships. And they have a loved one that's starting to get sober. So they start listening to the show. They go to the network, they go to recovered life. They start to try to get some answers for this. And they don't, they don't understand that. They don't, they don't understand why would somebody stay 
in a position that's so bad for them when all the empirical data is around that it's just not working. Well, it is somewhat working. There's a sense of control in mm -hmm. the practice. Mm -hmm. I know at least I'm going to get to that place. And you can apply this to ACOA for people who have a story and, you know, to forgive or to move forward, to explore seems much scarier than just bad habits. You know, there are character defects in every one of the programs. And I'm, I'm not a fan of that word, but I'll use it because it's universally used that uh, that we can stay attached to our old lives. We can do that as ACOAers and yet still be confused why an alcoholic stays attached to their alcohol. So it is applicable in all of the programs. Yeah, it absolutely is. You know, number five, uh, this was a good one, was harboring resentments. Yes. Uh, the, you know, and and just, you know, if you if you just popped onto the live stream here, you're listening, we're listening to the New Start Recovery blog. We're talking really about why alcoholics choose to self-sabotage. And we're at number five, harboring resentments. What do you think Oof. of that one, Christina? It makes me want to take a deep breath. Um, I hate to admit it even now, 25 years later, but boy, did I have resentments when I first came into uh, the program or when I first decided to address my alcoholic drinking. I had so many resentments. And, you know, in some cases, I had true grief that I kind of hid as resentments, right? True grief that was like actually not really just a resentment. It was absolutely something I needed to walk through. And so I believe, you know, that this is kind of the part where there's freedom on the other side of allowing your resentments to come up unexpressed, unexamined unexamined anger is a, you know, could become a resentment. And so it's, it's the work part of the program. And I do agree with it. Well, this is where the self-sabotaging comes in. I think this is where the, uh, this is where we see the emotions rise and we see the, we see people blowing things up. Right. And I think, you know, you see this a lot in the work and family situation where like, maybe it's a holiday or you're in a work environment, you're working on a team and everybody has no idea Then all mm -hmm. of a sudden, boom, this person blows it up. Right. Right. Because what's going behind what's, what's happening behind the scenes. You know, I always went to this really great 12 step meeting in Burbank, Christina. Yes. Uh, and this meeting had been around for like 50 years. And, and they, they always said the topic of the meeting every week was what's really going on. So <laughs> it was like, what's not go what's okay. Well, I'm having a problem at work. But what's really going on? Oh, well, I'm having a problem with control, right? Right. So I think if you take, you know, look, you take untreated alcoholism and without any kind of peer support group or any kind of therapy or anything like that coaching, and you have poor self-worth, imposter syndrome, a need for control, you're not comfort, you're not comfortable and you, there's no familiarity there. And then you're, you start to harbor resentments that is going to end up in a, not a great place. That's true. That's true. That's why we say that the work starts once you put the drink down. Um, you know, it's great when people get sober, but in order to stay, you have to do the work. And uh, this is the work, you know, recognizing where we are holding on to control, recognizing where we need to do some emotional cleanup, some excavation is part of the work and it will allow you to stay. And that's what we always want to end up with is staying. Don't leave before the miracle happens. Absolutely. You know, and I think let's be real too. I think most of that three months to a year or two years, especially in coaching, when you have people that you're coaching, 
it really is about keeping people from self-sabotage. I mean, Truly. I have to tell you, I, I know this with, with guys, especially guys, late twenties, early thirties, but it's, it's really anyone, but really that, that age group in particular. Wow. I mean, you know, they can rebuild themselves so quickly because of the youth, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the youth and energy, they can go from uh, local detox are being locked up to, you know, a really great business, a really great family, really great people, and then blow it up, see, you know, seemingly over something that's really inconsequential to the bigger True. picture. But that's really why I thought this was good to talk about, because if you see yourself self-sabotaging, Christina, what, what do you tell the people? I mean, what do you tell the people that you're working with that sure. are just blowing stuff up? Are there, are there, sure. I think it's better. They start to, I, I think, you know, sponsors specifically, good sponsors in 12-step programs or coaches or therapists, they start to see planting the seeds to blow it yes, up. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things is is that I will tell somebody, I notice you're tr you want to burn the, the village down right now. You want to burn yeah. your bridge. You're angry. You're scared. And so I always remind them this will not last. But, the, but what you really want is not to burn the bridge down, which allows you to isolate. What you want is to, you know, say what you need to say and have it be met with kindness and appropriate be, you know, responses. And so rather than stepping toward, you know, and lighting that match <laughs> or pouring gasoline on it, why don't we sit back for a day? If you still feel this way tomorrow, then we can go and address it and figure out how to walk through it in a way yeah. that is both honoring to you and the other person. But well, often yeah. it won't last. It will not last. Well, I, I'll tell you, I'm going to be really honest with you. I you know, I still to this day will have a thing. It's just like, you know, it's not working, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes look, and sometimes you're just around difficult people. Like let, let's True. just, let's just be, let's be real. I mean, like, you know, people, the mental health of people just in general, forget about addiction or recovery, just the regular people walking around that don't suffer from any addictions. There's a lot of crappy people in the world sometimes that you will come across. Right. And I suffer from, it's like, I will feel the feelings of, you know what, I'm just going to burn this to the ground Yes. rather than participate anymore. <laughs> and, and there'll be this scorched earth, right? <laughs> you know, and, and I'm not going to say that I don't have those feelings anymore. You know, I called you the other day about something. I was so pissed off about something, but right. after I laughed about it later after I talked with you about it. And, but here's the thing that I think that's so interesting. Here's where you know that you're on the path to recovery, Christina, is that is feeling those feelings. It, totally acknowledging that I have them. I'm not ignoring that I have them. Right. But understanding that I don't do that, mm -hmm. that there's no need to do that, and that I'll feel differently about it later. And even if I don't feel differently about it later, I will not uh, further my case. I will not help my recovery. I will not help humankind by burning everything to the ground. So and that's just yet another amends I'll have to make, right? That's just right. another thing that I'm going to have to do. I'm moving further away. So it's like, I think if people are listening to this and they're feeling like, I'm just going to burn it to the ground. I think that that is like, I'm going to self-sabotage this. Mm -hmm. Just because you feel it doesn't mean you actually have to do it. And this was a bit, this was a huge learning experience thing with me in recovery. 
It's so true. You do not have to do that. You do not have to go down the road of self-destruction or destruction of relationships because you're having an angry moment or you're feeling really, really scared. Let's find the emotion underneath. Let's find where the trigger point is and let's go back and heal what that triggering is trying to tell you is still in existence. You know, those are clues to, I haven't cleaned up some of the things that I need to clean up. And as an adult, we get that opportunity. We do not have to wait for somebody else to do it. We can do it ourselves. Yes, absolutely. We can do it ourselves. And this is why great peer support, this is why being involved in a 12-step group, having a coach, having a therapist, having somebody that you could work with, that you could express this to. It's like, hey, I'm feeling like I want to burn this to the ground. Like I'm feeling like this is just <laughs> not working for me. And I'm going to make, you know, not only am I not going to play the game anymore, I'm going to, I'm going to overturn the board and make sure right. no one can play the game that you, you know, you're not on the right path when that happens, right. but just being able to talk to somebody about that diffuses that. And, and I think that's the, we have solutions for this now. We sure do. We sure do. Well, Christina, this has been just an amazing segment. And before we go on, I'd like to actually talk. We have much more show ahead. But before we go on, I want to talk to everybody about this really great e-course that we put together called Can't Say No. Look, if you're sitting here and saying, man, I this self-sabotage thing, I totally understand this because I have family and friends and coworkers and they're driving me absolutely crazy. I give, I give, I give, and I just don't feel like I'm getting anything back you might actually have an issue here. And that's why we put together Can't Say No. This is a free three-day challenge and you can get it at info.recoveredlife.us. And who is this for? This is for anyone who's an over-volunteer. This is for anyone who just gives, gives, gives. And it's not reciprocal. Like you're not getting the energy back. This might be a sign that you might not have great boundaries and that you might have some codependency issues. So Christina put together this th free three-day challenge that you could start to take your life back. All you have to do is go to info.recoveredlife.us to download it 100% for free. That's info.recoveredlife.us. So Christina Dennis, a lot more show to come. Uh, it's going to be, we have another great segment coming up after this quick break. You're listening to the Recovered Life Show. Welcome back to Recovered Life. I'm Christina Dennis with my host, Damon Frank. Hello. We hello, have a, hello. <laughs> we have a wonderful second segment coming up for you about Depressed Anonymous. You may never have heard of this 12-step group, which is why we're bringing it to you today. This episode is being brought to you by Recovered Life contributors and people like you. So make sure to like, share, follow, and leave a comment, as well as visit info.recoverlife.us to leave us a donation so we can keep helping others and to join the network. That's once again, info.recoverlife.us. So oh, thank you, Damon. Christina. That was really great. <laughs> that was really, really great. And I love Thanks. seeing everybody. You know what I really love is I love people that comment on the YouTube uh, mm -hmm. channel or the Facebook live. And then we see them on recovered life and they're communicating with people or they have an issue and they're going there to get the answers. It really, it warms my heart. It makes me feel like we're doing something great here. We are. We are. And it opens up. I mean, now with Recovered Life, I now have friends in recovery from Europe, 
and Norway and different places. So it's, I know Norway's in Europe, by the way. I know it's really, really a beautiful space. And I really, it, it's really up to my game. So have you ever heard of Depressed Anonymous, Damon? You know what? I'm so glad that you brought this up. I'm going to be really 100% honest with you about this one. And very blunt. I thought this was a joke. Nope. I did not think it was real, not because I don't think that people are depressed. I think depression is very real and especially for people in recovery. But I thought depressed and I don't know what it now there. It doesn't exist. This is something that somebody made this up. And then you told me how long depressed anonymous has actually been out there. Yes, yes. I actually attended several depressed anonymous. And first, I want to start with depression is a serious medical condition. We are not doctors. If you are suffering yeah. from depression, we want you to get help. But I was in a space where a couple of people did just, you know, mentioned, did you ever hear about Depressed Anonymous? And I too had never heard about it. But a couple of us got together and bought the literature. And I'm going to tell you, it changed my life. That literature was amazing. And if you have a second, I'm going to read the preamble because yeah, I think please, this is... please do. So Depressed Anonymous, we believe that what we think, what we say, and what we do impacts our depression. We believe that depression can be managed by applying the principles of the 12 steps and all are welcomed. And some people who may be suffering from depression might get angry. I, I once again want to tell you that I'm not I'm not saying medication, not medication. I'm very open about my journey and I do get help with an antidepressant. It's important to seek medical attention. But what I loved about Depressed Anonymous was the fact that they took the word depression and and really, really dispelled this belief that somehow um, we had some control over depression. Yes. I love this. You know, it's, and I don't even know after looking at this stuff, I don't even know if controls are right. Well, we have some participation in it, That's right? Because word. like, I, you know, the, the thing about the word control that sometimes I started is that like, you know, do I have control that I'm an alcoholic? Well, I have control possibly over making a decision not to drink, but mm -hmm. uh, some of it's biological. Right. And it's the same That's thing true. with depression. And, and I think that, um, you know, I am so glad that we're actually having this segment because a, a lot of people ignore depression right. in 12-step groups specifically, and it's killed a lot of people. It really mm -hmm. has. And like mm -hmm. you said, you know, anything that we say, guys, on this, you, Christina and I are not doctors, uh, but one thing we do know for sure, it, it, although not giving you medical advice, we can give you our observation of what we've seen. And there is a so much uh, misinformation when it comes to mental health, depression, and recovery in mm -hmm. peer support groups. Mm -hmm. And so just like you said, you are powerless over alcohol, which is step one if you're in a 12-step group. The Depressed Anonymous discusses that we are powerless over depression. And I still think that people don't believe that. And especially like myself as an alcoholic thought that that meant that there was something really wrong with me, that I was faulty, that I, you know, had a problem, you know, and that was something that I was choosing. And one, they have a wonderful description 
in the green book. You know, you can go look at it and depressed and on on. You know, that's what the actual, um, you know, org organization is, or just Google Depressed Anonymous, and you will find it. The entire first uh, section of the book gives one of the best descriptions of what depression feels like for people. And the whole idea that it is, um, that it's something that we can control is really dispelled. And it's something that we can turn over to a higher power to help us walk through it. And it, it was beautiful to take my depression and put it on the outside of me. Because just like I thought being an alcoholic made me a bad person, I thought that being depressed made me a weak and bad person. And having the 12 steps to walk through it with a bunch of people that wanted to talk about it um, was really, really enlightening. You know, I, I have to tell you, one of the things that I found great about this that really like, after I realized it's like, oh no, this is a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, I thought, wow, this is really going to save a lot of people because I think um, my experiences with depression is that um, rarely are people not depressed when they've come in for an addiction issue, because at some point, just biologically, you know, you're, you're going from injecting alcohol or drugs or food or something into you, something toxic into mm -hmm. you. And it could even be people, right? It could be just you don't have any physical addiction to any substance, but you're a really bad codependent. You start mm -hmm. to come in, you go down the recovery road. What happens is you start to realize what's actually happened in your life. And that automatically kind of throws the gear in the into the depression gear, really. Absolutely. I've seen this time and time and time again. And, and there's anger and the anger is really depression. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just, it's just all these feelings and it's kind of a toxic waste up and people kind of put it as like, I'm depressed in a big yes. kind of bubble. Right. But what right. does that really mean? Well, that's what, that's exactly what I'm saying when I say taking my depression and putting it on the outside of me, it does not describe me. It is something that I'm struggling with, but it doesn't describe me. And alcohol is a depressant. I mean, I think most of the world understands that. And our body always wants to obtain homeostasis. So when we flush it with dopamine, you know, that, that drug that tells us we want more, it, our body and our brain will actually cycle down and leave us a little more depressed than we were before we started the whole cycle. And so it's very, very normal for people to be depressed when they first um, start an alcohol recovery program or a drug recovery program. And then there are people like myself who have a prone, you know, who are prone to depression and have been depressed and were a depressed child because of trauma. And so actually putting it outside of me and listening to other people that felt the same way about my depression really helped me figure out what was my part? What was the footwork? What did I need to turn over to a higher power? What could I do? And it helped me no longer have morality around depression. Yeah. You know, I think, um, one of the, one of the things that was highlighted is, you know, um, it was Bill W. in the in in the big book talks about his depression, right? In writing, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. and you know we have uh, uh, somebody who's really good on the history, George Schneider, who's mm -hmm. one of the uh, contributors, uh, recovering life strategist George, and he's an author and writes about about a lot of this stuff. Is that you know it was so misunderstood. He knew that he had depression. You know, I think people were more aware of depression 
mm-hmm. uh, before alcoholism medically, right? So right. There, there were people were talking about being blue and being depressed and not being able to get out of this funk. And it's interesting, like for my own personal story of this, when I first got into recovery, I went into a deep depression, right? Mm-hmm. I, I do not consider myself a depressed person, people mm-hmm. that know me. But I will tell you like now, because of COVID, the lockdowns, not being able to do anything. Um, I felt myself kind of get into that, like kind of lethargy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, well, you know, we- and here's a totally, and here's the thing that I'm going to say about this, Christina, I've found, you know, that it, through the business and recovery thing, I deal with a lot of high performance people. Right. Um, I find that depression is more prevalent in high performance people than anyone else. It's the, it's the go-getters. It's the people that are doing it. It's the people who are running your meeting, who are doing, doing the deal, who have the businesses, who have the fam. They're they're They have what you want quote, right? They're they're They suffer from depression just as much as anyone else. More, I would say. Well, we talked about the other, you know, the other word that doesn't get described shame. And I think there's so much shame around saying I'm depressed, especially if things look like they're going well, you know, if things look on the outside, like they should be, you know, what do you have depressed to be? You know, what do you have going on that you need to be depressed? I mean, that is often what we say. And I'm so glad that you brought up the mental health part, which is another reason why I wanted to bring up this literature and let people know about it. Because the the entire world has gone under, you know, I call it a four-step inventory <laughs> mm-hmm. for the entire world during the, you know, we're all taking inventories You're about our life. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely yeah. right. And so does this work for me anymore? Do I really want to, do I really want to go back to a nine to five? Do I really want to work? Yes. Right. All these people are asking these questions. Everybody's asking these questions. Right. So depression could have snuck its way back in. One of the descriptions in the book that really got me was, you know, people think it's necessary. It doesn't necessarily always attach itself to sadness. Sometimes it's literally just being woolly. Like you have cotton around you. Like there's a bubble around you. Like you can't participate in life. It's like the scene in Wizard of Oz. It's black and white you know, and it never goes to technicolor. And they want to be happy about something. They continue to strive for something. We continue to strive for something. We want that to make us happy. And we want this to make us happy. Yet there might be trauma underneath it. There might be grief underneath it. And so admitting that we're powerless over our depression is such an amazing relief because then we can talk about it with others that are suffering from depression, we can start to recognize it and we can start to address it. Yeah. And I, you know, and I'm going to, and I'm going to be really, uh, I'm going to be really open here about this, about my feelings about depression. Okay. I have changed a lot because I have met people through peer support groups and friends and other people that are sober, uh, that are doing the deal really big that suffer from depression. Mm-hmm. And, and my feelings of just like, just snap out of it and stuff have changed. And I'm going to say this, I'm going to make a really bold statement. I think, um, and again, I don't think it's 12 step groups in general because they're not set up unless it's depressed anonymous. It's not set up to deal with depression. True. It's set up for people who are drinking themselves to, to death for the right. most part. Right. So right. I'm a big proponent of don't, you know, look in early recovery, you're going to have a lot of feelings. I don't think, uh, you know, and those could be, uh, those could be interpreted as a numerous amount of mental health issues, sure. right? But after it kind of evens out and you start to do the deal, a lot mm-hmm. of those I found 
and I'm generalizing, I'm generalizing, go away. But I think that some of the disservice that has happened in uh, the recovery community is not acknowledging when it doesn't go away right? and telling people to get over it, that they're not working a good enough program. And I've seen it. I've seen it kill people, Christina, literally. I've Mm -hmm. seen people who felt like, well, I have to fake it now. I can't Mm -hmm. be honest because I'm quote, not sober enough. And they kill themselves, right? right? Literally kill themselves, right? And people are shocked, but yet the signs were there the whole time. See, I had an angel in my life 23 years ago that um, was in the program, but also a licensed therapist. And she presented it to, to me like this. She said, not everyone has to work as hard as you do to be happy. And it had never occurred to me that other people had access to a peaceful life and they weren't doing the same thing that I was doing. And because she shared about the, the different treatments around depression and anxiety, and she, I mean, I worked with her for four years and it really changed. And I can only imagine what my life would have been like if somebody hadn't said depression is not a moral issue. Depression is, is, you know, for many reasons, your predisposition, you have trauma. There's a lot of reasons why we have it. And we are not doctors or medical professionals or therapists in our 12-step groups. And, and, and let's be and let's be honest, Christina. Sometimes, sometimes um, 12-step communities, there's it's not the hotbed of mental wealth. There's a lot of there's a lot of people that don't have what you want that right. pretend that they do have what they want, right? Like, and so th- there's some not great advice, especially regarding sure. depression. I mean, I've shared with you, kind of, you know, off the screen, off the show here, some horrible things that yes. I have seen in twelve step uh, witnessed, right, in twelve step programs of advice that was just absolutely crazy, right? right? Um, and you know, you, you're getting people in at their most vulnerable state. And a lot of times people walk into certain 12 step groups because it is kind of the last thing that they can get and it's it's free. Right. Mm -hmm. So the thing is they walk in, but the help might not be as educated about what's really going on with people as, as it, as they need to be. It's so true. It's so true. And so, you know, when I stumbled across this and that was during that four years and I worked, uh, worked the program for about a year, I, my program, my other programs catapulted into, you know, more freedom. And so I just encourage everybody, um, if you're feeling depressed or you have a sneaking suspicion that depression is following you around. You know, I remember feeling that way, like it was always following me around and it was going to get me at one for anxiety, that there are treatments, there are coaches, there are therapists that out there that will sit down. And I think that we have to talk about it more in the recovery community. And we're going to do more shows on this, guys, and we're going to bring on actual medical experts to talk about what's actually going on. Because I think the subset of addiction recovery slash depression Mm -hmm. is way bigger than we would like to admit. I think that people that suffer from uh, depression on multiple levels of the scale are way bigger than we would like to admit. And I don't think that we do enough in the education of that. And I, I'm just going to throw this out there. If you're listening to this and you're depressed, reach out and get some help. 
uh, please reach out and get some help. Uh, there, there is light at the end of this tunnel. And, uh, you know, Christina and I are thinking about you and, you know, we know that we know have people and, you know, Christina just shared that she reached out, got some help and yes. that it, it got better. It did. It, it will get better. It is, it is available to you to have a life free of it. Well, Christina, this has been an amazing segment. Episode 88, Monday, March 21st, 2022 in the can. There we go. Everybody back here. What? Wednesday, 8 a.m. Right. Yeah. We have an interview set up for Wednesday. Wednesday is going to be an amazing show, guys. We've got a lot going on. If you're not a member, join Recovered Life now, recoveredlife.us. we got a ton of stuff going on there, and we will see you Wednesday. Keep the conversation going. Join Recovered Life, a community of like-minded people who are looking to live their best recovered lives. Membership is free, and you can apply at recoveredlife.us.